If you have your Bibles or your scripture journals, and I hope that you do, I want to invite you to open with me to Exodus and chapter 20. Exodus and chapter 20. If you do have a scripture journal, that'll be on page 96, page 96 of your scripture journal. If you've uh, enjoyed those scripture journals, by the way, just let me know uh, if that's been helpful to you during uh, this series. We start uh, Luke, God willing, in um, the winter. Um, if those are helpful to you, we'll, we'll do it again, all right? So just let me know if you like those, all right? But we're jumping back into Exodus after a break for our Biblical Church Membership Series and our Summer in the Psalms. We're entering a part of Exodus that um, I think we could take in kind of bigger sections that lends itself to this. So um, this part, we should be able to move at a, a faster clip. Um, so we're jumping back in right after the Ten Commandments here. And so we'll be in verses 18 through 26 uh, in our time together. So if you got it, say, I got it. All right, let's go ahead and uh, read this together. Exodus chapter 20, starting in verse 18. God's word says, Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off. said to Moses, You speak to us, and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off, while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Verse 22. And the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it out of hoonstone, for you wield your tool on it, you profane it. You should not go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness be not exposed on it. Amen. This is God's word, and may God write its eternal truths on all of our hearts. A few weeks ago, I opened with an illustration uh, from perhaps C.S. Lewis's most famous, popular, well-known books, The Lion, the Witch, and the wardrobe, but this time I want to I draw your attention to one of his less well-known books that's called The Great Divorce. Okay, this is what it's called, The Great Divorce. It's been described as a theological fantasy or a dream vision, okay, so it's a work of fiction. In The Great Divorce, the narrator journeys from the outskirts of hell, which is called Greytown, okay? to the outskirts of heaven, which is called the Green Plains. And as you can imagine, along the way, the narrator meets and conversates with many people who have died. Well, the vision starts in Greytown, which is the hell of this fantasy. And Michael Reeves describes it like this. Listen to what he says. He says, while everyone there, Greytown, is afraid of the dark, few dare step aboard the bus to heaven because they're even more afraid of the light. For while the darkness is scary in how it shrouds nameless horrors, the light is more in that it exposes them. 
And the people from Greytown, they're kind of like this uh, ghostly shadows, okay? They're not solid. The people from the Green Plains, they're, they're solid and whole, okay? And when the bus arrives in the bright beauty of the heavenly meadow, one of the shadowy souls from hell screams, I don't like it. I don't like it. It gives me the pip, which is a British-ism for saying it depresses or puts them kind of out of sorts, okay? And when the people from Greytown see people from the Green Meadow, they want to flee. They want to shrink back. In one such instance, a solid person from the heaven of this fantasy reaches out to touch one of these ghost-like people, and the ghost screams, go away, can't you see I want to be left alone? And the solid one responds, but you need help. To which the ghost replies, if you have the least trace of decent feeling left, you'll keep away. I don't want help. I want to be left alone. Now you see, the fear for the ghosts is their realization that to dwell in heaven, they have to give up their self-dependence. They have to give things up. They have to lose things. They have to give up their misery, their anger, their grumbles. That They can't imagine being without the very things that deform them and keep them from happiness. And they shudder at the prospect of liberation and purification. Their sinful fear is a struggle against joy. It's a fear of the light and a refusal to let go of the darkness. So they are afraid, but they're more afraid of the light than they are the very things that captivate them, held them captive and deformed them. Rather than endure the pain of becoming whole, they would rather continue in their ghostly state because they fear the pain of losing the things that make them miserable. They fear, yes, but they fear the wrong things. Says Reeves again, sinners prefer their darkness and their chains to the light and freedom of heaven, and so they dread its holiness. What Lewis was showing in The Great Divorce was something that we see in our text this morning, and it's this, okay? There is a wrong and sinful fear of the Lord that should be rejected. But there is a right and good fear of the Lord that should be embraced. Contrary to the way we use the word fear in our culture, not all fear, biblically speaking, is bad. Don't we, in our culture, fear is altogether a bad word, isn't it? It's a bad thing. Reeves says again, when your culture, which ours is, is hedonistic, your religion therapeutic, and your goal a feeling of personal well-being, fear will be the ever-present headache. And so it is. A simple observation of our culture reveals this to be true. The shadowy people from the gray town feared, but they feared wrongly. They feared holiness. They feared becoming solid. They feared losing the things that kept them from being made whole and embraced the very things which made them miserable. A right fear would have driven them to the green plains and to subsequent wholeness because it would have caused them to fear the pain of staying in chains rather than the right fear that embraced holiness. As we jump back in Exodus, we find ourselves, we're still at Sinai, right? We're going to be here the rest of the book where God has brought Israel back in order to bring them close to himself, to covenant with them, he has rescued them. We saw over and over again, didn't we, through this series? He has rescued them with his mighty arm. He has delivered them on eagle's wings. And he speaks to them audibly in Exodus 20 to give them the Ten Commandments. 
Now, we must not forget the order of events. God saved Israel by his own might, yes? By his own strength, by his own initiative, with no contribution from the Israelites. This is true, right? And he means to be in relationship with them because of the love that is found within himself. He has saved them by grace and has brought them to Sinai, and only then does he give them the law. That they might know how to live in light of that grace. So remember, they're not saved by law. And that was not the purpose of it. They're saved by God and his work and grace and law functions to show them how to live the way that God intended before sin marred everything in Genesis 3. Remember our often repeated line, love is law-shaped and law is love-shaped, which we'll explore more in a bit. So in the Ten Commandments, which you can just look up and, and browse those, and you're familiar with them, hopefully. God instructs them on how they ought to. We remember we divided it up in how to vertically relate to him, right? And that it flows, that vertical relationship flows how they re- relate to one another horizontally in the community. That's the way the Ten Commandments fall out. Then in the rest of Exodus, essentially what happens is we see the things in the Ten Commandments The things given in chapter 20 are fleshed out in more detail, okay? Now, as we drop in today, we see that God has descended onto Mount Sinai. He's appeared in thick uh, smoke and cloud and lightning and his booming voice. He's given audibly the Ten Commandments as they had drawn near, as he had instructed to the mountain. And that's what he wanted, right? Did you remember seeing that? Didn't God wanted them to come near to the mountain so that he could descend. You remember? That's what he wanted. He, he intended to bring them in. He intended to draw them near because his desire was a relationship with this people. But what happens? All of this frightens them. Did you see that? They're afraid of the sights and the sounds and the majesty and the might and the holiness of God. In verse 18, We see the people, they're trembling, and it caused them to withdraw, do you see that, from the mountain, and it caused them to tell Moses, they want him, they're like, you go, you go, you speak to God on behalf of us, and then you come down and deliver the message from God. Rather, (coughs) they prefer that overhearing God speak in the fire and the thunder and the cloud like this. In fact, You could say, if you write in your scripture journal, the fear of the Lord is the main point of this section from 18 to the end of the chapter. And so so naturally, it'll drive what we discuss. And what we'll see is that, perhaps contrary to our modern minds, not all fear is bad. Rather, there is a right fear and there is a sinful fear. And this text bears that out. But if if you did want to explore more of this topic of right and sinful fear, I would highly recommend you check out a book, excellent book called Rejoice and Tremble. It's by Michael Reeves. Go check that out, all right? But we're going to explore it a little bit here. So first, consider what we see in 18 through 21. Here we see Israel's reaction to hearing the voice of the Lord as he gives the Ten Commandments in the cloud and the lightning. 
Note, isn't this interesting? Notice what Moses says here. Because on the surface, this seems contradictory, doesn't it? He says, do not fear. Do you see it? For God has come to test you. Why? That you may fear him. That you may not sin. Do you see that? So Moses says both that do not be afraid and that God has done this so that they will fear. So should they, should they fear or not? Is fear good or bad? Is it right or wrong? Should they fear or shouldn't they? Should we fear or shouldn't we? The answer is yes. Right? You guys, I mean, you, you knew I was going to do that, didn't you? The Israelites are expressing a sinful fear where Moses desires them to have a healthy, right, loving, trembling, awe-inducing fear. The difference between right fear and wrong fear is right here in the text. What does wrong fear do to the Israelites? Remember, God has pursued them, right? They didn't come looking for him, did they? God pursued them. He took the initiative. He chose them. He moved mightily to rescue them and brought them here. Why? To bring them into relationship with himself. He did it because he loves them. And he wants them to be close to him. How close? As close as is possible when you have a fearsome, holy, majestic, perfect God and an unholy, sinful people. As close as that is possible. I mean, they're at the foot of Sinai because God told them to come near so that he may descend upon the mountain and meet with them and verbally give them the law. But instead, what do we see here? We see the people being afraid, and so they withdraw. So this is the key that we need to see about what kind of fear is sinful. Sinful fear drives you away from God rather than to him. Let me say that again. This is the wrong sinful fear. Wrong fear drives you away from God rather than to him. A perfect example of this happened right after Adam and Eve plunged the world into darkness, didn't it? Because they partook, of course, of the one tree that God said not to. Even in the dialogue between Eve and the serpent, you see these wrong kinds of fear because the, the, the serpent told her, one, God didn't mean it when he said that they would surely die, right? You will not surely die. And two, God's holding out on you. So they didn't fear rightly in that they didn't fear God's holiness, buying into the lie that they wouldn't surely die. And they feared that they didn't have as much as they should, that God was holding out on them. Then they sinned, and their eyes are open. They realize they're naked. They become ashamed, and they, they did what? They hid. Rather than running to God, when they realized what they have done, they ran from God. And even when God's presence was felt, Adam, where are you? What do you say? I heard you, the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid. That's the wrong fear. That's sinful fear. That's being afraid. And it's not what God wants those who belong to him to feel. 
Fear is a right response to God, but not the type of fear that repels. Not a fear that causes his people to hide from him. Israel felt that fear, and it wasn't the fear they were supposed to have. They were supposed to have a fear that drew them closer to God, not one that pushed them back from him. The the fear that Moses was after was a fear that saw God not as hazardous, but as glorious, even if being too close to him would kill them. This right fear is remembering that God did not, just think about the logic of it, God did not bring them all the way out here and do all that he did in all the plagues and calling them close to Sinai and then descend all because he just wanted to kill them. Right? Isn't that what they did when they grumbled on the way here? Moses, did you bring us all the way out here so you could kill us? You think how dumb that is? God did all of this and brought them near, and they're like, we need to withdraw lest we die. Sinful fear is even illogical. Their their fear lacks trust. It's logical in thinking that God would bring them all this way just to kill them by his presence. That's exactly what they say. End of verse 19, isn't that what they say? You speak to us, and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die, as if they know better than God. You see what this sinful kind of fear does? Really, it lacks faith, doesn't it? It does not take into account God's character and care. Why would he kill them? For obeying? Right fear takes into account God's character, and thus it draws near to him, not away from him. (coughs) It would be like if Adam and Eve, imagine, if Adam and Eve sinned, but then ran to God. Because they knew while punishment might come, right, that it would be just and balanced with God's mercy because that's who God is. That's who they seen him to be. They, they saw him as judge only, and so they ran. They forgot who he was as friend when he fellowshiped with them in the garden. When they drew near to him, a right fear would have caused them to go running to him, not hiding from him. Israel, too, they should have stayed where they were, knowing that God didn't bring them all this way to take them out, and especially that he wasn't going to kill them for being obedient. They should, they should have balanced what they knew of God, what they've seen of God, what God has promised. He said, I'm taking you to promised land, right? And they should have feared with a fear that attracted to them, them to him, not away from him. And thinking about this, I was thinking of like a natural place of beauty, like uh, there's a place called the Half Dome at Yosemite Park. Does anybody, anybody know what that is? You know what that is? A couple of y'all? Well, it's the crest of this, this, I mean, it's what it sounds like, right? It's this big kind of like mountain that looks like it, it was cut in half, like it was a dome that was cut in half and half of it was removed. And the crest of this thing stands a mile above the valley floor, okay? Even still, it attracts hundreds of people every year who spend at least 12, you have, to, you have to dedicate at least 12 hours to climb up and down this thing. And as they do, they encounter slick rocks and steep climbs, and even a portion has like these cables. Go Google this when you get home, okay? Don't do it while I'm talking, please, all right? Do it when you get home, all right? They have these, ca- it's like the, the, you're going up this like really steep rock and you have these cables that are, you know what I'm talking about? They have these cables that were built in that you have to use to climb. And they get to the top, 
or, or as, even while they're climbing, they encounter this beautiful scenery, waterfalls, and, and you get to the top, you get this incredible, like indescribable view. And people even right, walk right up to the edge of the cliff. And they, they then have two simultaneous feelings. They're in awe of the beauty and the grandeur. And they're afraid because one slip, <laughs> right, most assuredly would kill them. They're afraid with a fear that makes sense. Who wants to fall for a mile to certain death? They should, right? They should be afraid. But that is balanced with their wonder and magnificence of it all. The mountain both attracts them and causes them to fear. That's what right fear of the Lord should do. Says Reeves one more time. He says, The living God is infinitely perfect, quintessentially overwhelmingly beautiful in every way. His righteousness, his graciousness, his mercy, his majesty, his all. And so we do not love him aright if our love is not trembling, overwhelmed, fearful love. In a sense, then, the trembling fear of God is a way of speaking about the intensity of the saint's love for and enjoyment of all that God is. So this fear of God. It has a real appreciation for his holiness and his majesty. It does not take for granted the fact that through his grace and mercy, he has provided a way for you to be near him without being vaporized, and that's all because of him, not us. But you see that fearing God aright means you thus properly order all your other fears. Do you realize that? If you fear God with a holy, trembling reverential fear that attracts you to him, what on earth, literally, what on earth could you be afraid of? Tell me. The answer is what? Get a little Pentecostal action in you. I just want one word. Nothing! If you fear God with a right fear, what on earth? You see? We fear all kinds of things, right? We have alarm systems at our house. We lock our door that night. We lock our cars, right? We go to the doctor a ton. We have all these fears that drive what we do. Like everything we do. But if we fear God first and foremost, fears of earth would be subordinate. Right? They'd be rightly ordered and put in proper perspective. Many are driven by a fear of men. Aren't we? This is what John Bunyan called the idol of approval. It's, it is, says Bunyan, the fear of losing man's favor, love, goodwill, help, and friendship. This leads to compromise in order to gain approval from others because it is what we most want. We fear what man will think of us. We have a sense of dread of what people will think of us, which is truly the main driving force of social media, isn't it? But friends, should we fear men if we're fearing God rightly? Of course not. What, what can man do? What can man do to you? If you're in relationship with the sovereign God of all things who rules with meticulous providence and draws you in like a loving father does his dear child. Many churches face this crisis too, don't they? Some are afraid what faithfulness to the Lord will cost. 
What if, what if faithfulness to the Lord causes men to be displeased and they take their bodies and their checks elsewhere? Churches have bills to pay, right? So what's a little compromise to keep the lights on? I mean, if the choice is faithfulness, that may cost the applause and approval of men or compromise before the Lord, but men are pleased, which would you choose? Many choose the latter because, well, it's easier, it's safer. But it also shows that they haven't rightly ordered their fears. Right fear of the Lord means your ultimate allegiance is to Him and that your priority is faithfulness to Him Come what may. I mean, do, you, do we really think that if we are faithful to the Lord, that he'll leave us in the lurch? Do you not fear the Lord's disapproval more than man's? When you fear the Lord aright, fear of men will fade because you know that God will reward your faithfulness even if that reward doesn't look like success the way that men would define it. Okay, but now, see further why they should fear the Lord in verse 20. They should fear the Lord, which should motivate them to what? Not sin. Dwayne Garrett, in his commentary, says it like this. He says, Moses assures the people that the terrors of the theophany, the presence of the Lord, have a redemptive spiritual purpose that the people may be transformed by the power they see in the presence of God. Both frightening and unforgettable, the experience at Sinai was intended to dissuade them from sin. The people of Israel, says Moses, should fear God and they should fear sin, for they have seen the one that they would be offending through their sin. Do you see? This should keep them away from sin. They weren't offending some human ruler, right? Nor were they even offending a God who was simply like a harsh taskmaster, demanding they obey with a heart detached because he was after some kind of external conformity. They're offending a holy and awesome and powerful God who also rescued them on eagle's wings to bring them in. Do you see? Martin Luther says, He who merely studies the commandments of God is not greatly moved. But he who listens to the God commanding, how can he fail to be terrified by majesty so great? I mean, the Israelites should know who it is they are transgressing when they disobey the law, right? When they and we transgress the law, we're offending the mighty, wise, holy, all-powerful, all-knowing God who is so incredibly holy that merely being in his presence would incinerate us like a butterfly approaching the sun. But again, you put the right fear in perspective, it's not merely thinking that disobeying any of the Ten Commandments is just breaking God's rules, but seeing that it's breaking God's heart. Why? Because the law wasn't given because God is a cosmic killjoy. The law was given for their good. Motivated by God's grace and their relationship with him. Thus, when the law is transgressed, the people should draw near, not flee. This is what we often misunderstand, I think, about the Ten Commandments and the law. We think they were given by God as a means of salvation, like to salvation, or a means to get in relationship with him. Here we see this can't be the case. God already saved them, right? (laughs) And then he gave them the commandments. (coughs) If they rightly fear, they won't desire sin. 
They'll desire that which draws them near to God and what pleases Him because their loves are reordered around God and His desires for them. The laws then aren't restricting, but freeing, because contrary to popular belief, this is what we think, us moderns, right? Real freedom isn't found in no restrictions, but in the right ones. If you see a fish in the water, you say, man, I feel bad for that fish. He's restricted by the water. He should be able to get out and do whatever he pleases. Take the fish. Here you go. You're free now. And throw him on the land. What's going to happen to that boy? He's going to die, right? Because he needs the right restrictions, right? That's where freedom is found, in the right ones. It also is to recognize that to transgress his laws are actually harmful to us, right? That's why God gave them, because he wants what's best for them and us. The commands of God are good because they show us how to live as he intended to live. You just look down at the Ten Commandments. You imagine that if you live in a life of adultery or thievery or murder or hatred or constantly desiring what other people have, you will live a lonely, miserable, alienated, unfulfilling life. Right? So as I heard Sam Amati put it, I love this. You should write this down. The Ten Commandments are not a way to life. They're a way of life. You see? Ten Commandments are not a way to life. They're a way of life. In other words, they aren't the way to salvation. They're the way you ought to live in light of accomplished redemption, which was one for them and us through the work of a gracious God. G.K. Chesterton had his, a great illustration of this. He pictures, like, bless you, he pictures a plateau, okay, or an island high above the sea, okay? You can picture that in your mind. And there's a wall around the cliff's edge, okay? And there's a flat plain on top of this cliff. And there's children who are playing just raucous games, and they're running, and they're laughing, they're throwing themselves into the wall, and they're just having the best time. They're just going crazy on top of this plateau. And Chesterton said that those who want to do away with God's commandments are like people who want to tear down the walls of the cliff on the island, thinking that this will make the children free. But do you know what happens instead, he said, is the kids, they no longer play and laugh and enjoy themselves, do they? Instead, they they huddle themselves together in the center of the plateau because they're afraid of blowing over the edge. The walls were there in order to provide a safe space in which the people of God then as now can live, and there's freedom in that. The absence of walls isn't freedom. No walls will cause us to fear to go over the edge. The Ten Commandments and laws are walls, not to restrict, but for the people to enjoy life as it was meant to be, rather than falling into harmful and destructive sins. Now, the next set of verses offer further proof that God did not give the Ten Commandments in order for the people to do, do them so that they might be accepted. As if he thinks that they'll, here's a bunch of laws, obey them perfectly, I'll accept you. That's the way we usually think of the Ten Commandments. But this section shows that can't be true, right? Because Moses ascends up the mountain, right? Meets the Lord in verse 21. And in 22 through 26, the Lord instructs, gives instructions for Moses to give to the people. And what he gives them is a reiteration of the first two of the Ten Commandments, right? Because they are the basis of the rest. 
And then he offers instructions on building an altar. Do you see that? Isn't that interesting? What's an altar for? It's clearly in order that people can make a sacrifice to the Lord on behalf of their sins. Yes? That's what it's for. And where are these instructions given? Immediately after God gives the Ten Commandments. And right before the rest of the law. So if God set this bar of obedience that demands perfection lest Israel cannot be saved, why would he give them instructions right away about how to offer sacrifices for them transgressing the law? Further, God is saying through the commands in 22 through 26 that he is inviting them to come near. Don't you see that? He's responding to their wrong fear from 18 through 19 and saying, don't stand far off. Come close. He says, you've seen the power of the Lord descend in fire and smoke and cloud and lightning and heard his mighty voice. Do not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make yourselves gods of gold. What's this mean? It means the people are not to try to make any kind of image, even if they think it will represent Yahweh. Right? Any idol or image set up with him, even if it's intended to represent him, is in fact a rival. Now I want you to note two aspects of this from verse 23. Okay? I want you to note two phrases, if you underline in your Bible or scripture journal, to be with me and for yourselves. Okay? To be with me and for yourselves. These are important. To be with me means they would make something to represent God and they would put it in the place that God is to be worshipped. Okay? And what will inevitably happen? They will instead worship what? That thing. Instead of God. They can even have good intentions, right? But that can still lead to idolatry because they're worshipping the image rather than Yahweh and their worship must be distinct from how pagans worship. But if they build a statue, they're worshiping just like pagans are worshiping. Now, this phrase, for yourselves, is key. (coughs) Because the idol, it's not for Yahweh, is it? It's for them. Right? Now, you build a statue to represent Yahweh, is it for him? (laughs) It's for you to have something to look at, right? It then becomes the actual God of the people because they are designed by the people and thus they will represent human desire of what they think or want God to be rather than who he actually is, right? Notice how God reminds them. Did you notice he reminds them immediately of what took place? He reminds them that they were frightened. He reminds them of how awesome and mighty and powerful and holy and glorious he is. He reminds them of what they saw and felt because how do you experience what they did at Sinai and then think they could build some statue (laughs) to represent him? They, They should know that Yahweh is so far above what man could possibly begin to fathom. Says Garrett once more, artificial structures that supposedly augment his glory actually diminish it since the worshiper confuses the temple and image for God himself, which is too great for a human mind to conceive. And if they tried to build a statue to represent him, even if they thought it would honor him, it would fall infinitely short of who he really is. And 
they would make it the way they want God to be, wouldn't they? Rather than who God actually is. In other words, they would treat God the way kids everywhere treat stuffed animals at Build-A-Bear, right? They would assemble him however they wished. He would, he would be who they want him to be. They would, they would have, uh, have him your way, God, like they're going to Burger King or something, right? It reminds me of, there was a survey that was done a few years ago where researchers asked participants what they believed God like physically looked like, okay? And what they thought he believed. And they, all these were professing Christians, they asked. Can you guess what they found? They found that people think God looks a lot like them. Younger people, guess what they selected? Younger looking God. People who thought that they were physically attractive chose a more physically attractive God. African Americans selected faces that looked more African American. Caucasians picked, guess what? Caucasian God. If they were Republican, guess what they thought God believed? God's a Republican, right? If they were Democrat, guess what? God's a Democrat too, right? <laughs> to, to them, God agreed with all their beliefs, all their politics, and even physically looked like them. The study said that people often project their beliefs and traits onto others, and God's appearance is no different. People believe in a God who not only thinks like them, but also looks like them. God knows if Israel tried to make a representation of God like they saw in idol worship in pagan cultures, they do what the pagans did, which was make an idol for themselves, in their image, the way they conceive him rather than who he actually is. Do the lessons for us not abound here? We, no less than Israel, can both attempt to make God in our image and ironically worship, listen to this, we can ironically worship objects that are meant to aid us in worshiping him. I wonder, when you think of God, who he is, what's he, what's he, what he's like, what he commands you to do, what do you think of? Because Human propensity, I do this too, human propensity is to make God in our own image. Isn't that true? Is it? I'll stand here all day, man. You don't want to admit it, but you know it's true, right? In other words, when we think of God, we can think of how we think he ought to be, or how we wished him to be, rather than what he says or what he says is sin, or what he expects, rather than what the Word of God says. Here's a good test, okay? Test yourself. Does God ever push back against you? Does his Word ever challenge you? Are there things you wished weren't in the Bible? <laughs> like, you ever, you ever read something Jesus said, and you're like, I wish he had not said that? Like, love your enemies. Does his call on what it looks like to live a life following Christ run counter to how you'd prefer it to be? Because if you have a God who never disagrees with you, never challenges, wouldn't say anything you didn't like, then I have some very bad news. You are really worshiping a mirror or just a deified version of yourself. We have to be sure that our thoughts about God are shaped by his word, not by us, because he's greater than we could ever imagine on our best days. 
And, and if he's infinitely and incon- inconceivably holy, and we're not in ourselves holy, then of course his word should push back against us, right? Constantly. That is, if we're reading it rightly. We also must be careful of the impulse to worship the things that we use in order to worship rather than the object of worship. We can tend to get attached to styles and forms and structures that are supposed to help us worship God and worship them instead. Jared Wilson hits on this when he said, in many churches, the experience of worship is the true object of worship. This is what the so-called worship wars showed us, right? Isn't that what it showed us? More than anything, it's not that it was, it's, it's not inherently wrong to like one style over the other, but mere desires became obscured because we consciously or unconsciously were worshiping the style rather than the God that they should have been pointing to. We worship the worship rather than worshiping the only one who deserves to be worshiped. But a consumeristic approach to worshiping God is even more insidious because it can not only cause us to worship the means and cause them to become ends, but it can also cause us to worship ourselves because, listen to this, rather than being driven by how God says we ought to worship, we become the objects of worship because we become the ones who must be appeased in the service. You see how insidious this is? We can do what God told Israel not to do here and set it up to be with him and cultivate it for ourselves. And this feeds directly into what we see in verses 24 through 26. When they build the altar, what does he require? Did you notice? Does he want it to be as fancy and shiny as possible? Does he want it to go cut fancy stones that fit just right. Does he say that? Does he want them to make, make it the way the pagans make their altars for their false gods out of gold and silver? Does he want elaborate and complicated structures that only the wealthiest and most put together people can construct? Does he? No to all of that. Did you notice what he requires? Isn't this fascinating? All he requires is an altar made out of some dirt and whatever rough and jagged rocks they can find. Isn't that not what it says? God is not after elaborate structures as if the more elaborate and fancy the structures, the more pleased he will be. He requires something that any person can build, right? Because like the statues of gold and silver, elaborate religious structures are a diversion which cause people to focus more on their man-made places for worship than God. He doesn't even want them to build steps. (laughs) Do you see that? That's the last verse. Don't even build steps because just watching some priest climb up them would distract them and take their focus away from God. There is simply no correlation between the cost and extravagance of a structure and right worship. In other words, the expense and gaudiness used to worship God is not automatically more pleasing to him. Right worship doesn't come from impressive or outward appearance. What does God want? He wants you 
and he wants you to bring your nothing. Like I grew up hearing, like you grew up hearing, come to worship at church, you need to wear your what? Oh, see? <laughs> Got to wear the Sunday best. You've heard this, right? In our context, that means like suits or a nice slacks or a dress or whatever, right? Whatever your best clothes are, that's how you must come to church. But I mean, if you didn't do that, does that mean God won't accept your worship? Does it? If you're worshiping from a heart set on him and his glory, is God really overtly concerned with the outward appearance of a worshiper? Tell me. Or is he after the heart? Has he set up barriers to come worship him? Has he? Speak. Or are we the ones who are setting up the barriers? Fact is, expensive or fancy or impressive does not automatically result in true worship. Do you know that? Is that not clear here? God simply does not care about that. If you want to dress fancy, right on. If you don't, I don't care. Like, it's about your heart for the Lord. I'm not going to bind your conscience if the Lord does it. What did, what did Jesus call the Pharisees? White washed tombs. On the outside, they looked really fancy, didn't they? But what was on the inside? A heart detached from the Lord, like dead things. You know, I was reminded of this a few days ago. Uh, I was in Louisville, as many of you guys know, for a doctoral seminar at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, okay? And I got out of a seminar uh, for the day before Daniel did. And we were going to meet for dinner at this place that my professor had recommended that was downtown, all right? <clears throat> and so I had some time to spare, right? <clears throat> Waiting for Daniel, man, he's slow to get out. I'm just kidding, but he is. And so I was, you know, I had some time. I just drive around to and fro uh, throughout downtown, right? And, and I saw, like, these really cool-looking old church buildings, like one after the other almost on this, on this street. And I'm drawn, like, just, I'm drawn to those. Like, I'm drawn to that old-school architecture for churches. Like, if somebody, like, told me that I could build unlimited fund and I could build the church to look however I wanted, like the physical building, it looked like it was built in, like, the 1600s. You know what I mean? And I'm just drawn to those. I love that architecture. I like how they like tower into the sky and the bells, you know, and the old wooden doors and like the giant stained glass windows. I love that junk. New church architecture, it just doesn't draw me in like old church architecture does. You know what I'm saying? And there's something about it I like. Well, I was driving and I see this really cool looking church like in the distance, but it had a sign on it that didn't match the aesthetic at all. Right? So this church looked like it was built like in the 1800s, and the sign looked like, you know, modern script and, and just a black sign on this white stone. And I couldn't see what it says, but I finally I drove, got closer and closer and closer, and I could read the sign, and you know what it said? It was a restaurant. It wasn't a church. It was like Tex-Mex. But guess what? It was a church at one time. And a lot of old churches in Louisville, they've closed and they're now apartments, restaurants, bars, or some other business. And many, if not all of them, were churches that began to theologically drift liberal. Some abandoned the gospel. 
and some embraced doctrines that were heresy. And my point is, you had these awesome-looking, elaborate, ornate, gorgeous buildings, but many abandoned the gospel. And thus, abandoned worship that was pleasing and acceptable to God. No matter how aesthetically pleasing these churches designed to worship God in were, if they had wrong worship and a gospelist teaching, right worship wasn't taking place. And they're now not even being used for worship of any kind at all. God does not need elaborate spaces or spectacles in worship, and nothing should be done in worship of him that's for show. Nor should anything be done that could distract from putting your eyes on him alone. God does not call for extravagant spectacles anywhere in Scripture. He calls for simple worship that draws the worshiper to who? To him. That's what we're trying to do here. We're trying to put it in a show. We don't need to be impressive, right? And you're just like, you're succeeding. I'm not impressed, right? We don't need to be complicated. We want to do what Scripture calls us to do. We want to sing the word in congregational singing and read the word and preach the word and pray the word and fix your eyes on Jesus through it all. It's simple. It's uncomplicated. But what does, else does God call us in worshiping of him? And who are we trying to appease? And who do we truly fear? God is saying here in Exodus 20 that crude altar made of dirt and uncut stone more properly conveyed the fact that humans cannot adequately portray God's majesty. And he doesn't even want them to try. They want anything to get in the way of them coming to him because look and see what will happen. Be struck by this, okay? What will happen if they make this simple altar and bring their offerings for their sins in verse 24? What does it say? I will come to you and I will bless you. People were supposed to build these altars, just crude jank, right? <laughs> Earth, just made of some dirt. Any family can make it, and they're supposed to kill these animals. They're supposed to put them on the altar, burn them, watch them, consider how they sinned, and they're supposed to think, that should be me. For how I've offended a holy God. That should be me. And God would accept their sacrifice. And he would draw near like he wanted and like he wanted them to want. I wonder, do you see the gospel in this passage? God then as now wants to draw near to you. But he's so holy. And I'm so not, and you're so not, that for him to draw too near to sinful man would instantly kill him. And isn't it interesting that in verse 19, the people finally recognized Moses' role as mediator. And there's something in them that, that knows they need a mediator between them and God. And Moses fulfilled that role, but he was only a shadow of the fullness to come in a better and truer mediator. So Israel's inclination, right, is correct. 
They need a mediator between God and man. We need a mediator between God and man. And it's paradoxical that this incredibly glorious God would call for so simple an altar and such simple acts to worship Him through. Similarly, isn't it paradoxical that God would humble Himself and take on flesh and be born in some small town in the Middle East and be laid in a feeding trough? And isn't it paradoxical that we would call the least and the last and the despised, and the outcast, and the marginalized? And isn't it paradoxical that he would allow himself to be executed by people he created? And isn't it paradoxical that he would bear the wrath of sin of every person who has broken even one of these Ten Commandments? He's calling us to see how we have sinned and to feel the weight and to fear the one whom we have sinned against and see the gulf that exists between us and him and see we need a mediator. But then to look at the cross and consider the perfect God-man, the truer, better mediator between God and man being executed like a perfect lamb on an altar and look and say, that should be me. That should be me. And God accepted that perfect sacrifice, and the Spirit of God raised Jesus from the dead, and Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father to rule and reign over all things and mediate between God and man. And if we fear him with a holy fear, and we draw near to him, and give our allegiance to Jesus the King, God will draw near to us. And he will apply Jesus' sacrifice to your sin once and for all. No need to repeat it. And he will dwell with you, and he will enable you to obey his commandments and pursue life the way he intended for your good and for his glory, which will draw you to simple worship from a heart set free. If you've never drawn near to him, do it today. And he will assuredly draw near to you. If you do know him, if you have drawn near to him, consider him in his glory again. Can you consider him in his glory too many times? Fear him with a right fear that is overwhelmed by his majesty and grace and beauty and draw near to him again and again and he will draw near to you because of Christ.